a celebration of Chopin, and a look at the troublesome iguanas. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. The Frost School of Music is reopening its Frost Chopin Festival to the public. The festival celebrates the 19th century Polish composer and will introduce you to one of the piano masters, as well as one of the student pianists. Also, iguanas are a nuisance and they're hard to eradicate. For Wildlife Thursday, we're going to meet an iguana hunter. But first... Gun me down for leisure, lynched by laws that were never meant for me. I can hear that slave in my speech. Shackled neck to knees that make it hard to breathe, but easy to pray. We learn more about Mellow Fest, a spoken word poetry and musical festival to celebrate Juneteenth. All of that today on Sundial after the news. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thank you so much for joining us. As we near Juneteenth, we continue to hear reflections from those in South Florida's black community. For some, it's a celebration of the day, June 19, 1865, when news of freedom finally reached enslaved people in some of the deepest parts of the South. For others, it's a reminder that the news arrived over two years after the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation, also a reminder of a history that has been muddled. For many, it's a mix of both. Mellow Fest, happening in Dania Beach on Saturday, is observing that historic day with music and poetry. Bertrand Broyd is one of the artists performing. He's a writer and poet and actor, and he joins us now. Bertrand, such a pleasure. Thank you so much. I appreciate y'all having me. How you doing? Def- oh, doing great. Um, you know, Juneteenth has become an official federal holiday. It was made that last year. When did you first yeah. learn about the history, though, behind this day? Do you remember? Uh, probably when I was much younger, I, my grandmother and my, my father were very big in, in, in making sure that, that the offspring were well aware of the, you know, of our history. And my grandmother was actually, her name was Fanny Boyd. She passed at 99 and she was actually the first woman mechanic for the Tuskegee Airmen. Wow. So, it, um, so <clears throat> So his history is really it's, it's embedded in, in in my in my blood, to be honest with you. So uh, I was always aware of it. Now, the the surprise actually for me really was it being a holiday. I wasn't really really I wasn't believing that it would occur, that it would happen. But it actually to see it to be a holiday was definitely um, surprising. You know, and thinking about what you just said, so the history was embedded in you. Sounds like it was from your family, though. I wondered, like, your education in school, was it sufficient? Did it really go into true African-American history? Um, not in depth to, 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 to 1865. No, I can honestly say it, it wasn't something that was, uh, that was taught on a regular. Like, if anything, if you just had a special teacher that was, already interested in or that was <clears throat> aware of it you know then you probably caught on to it but for me in school no it wasn't something that was that was actually taught it'll probably be something that that'll be you know placed into the curriculum as of now but no not something that was <clears throat> embedded in, in, in curriculum then when you were when you were growing up as a kid i wondered like what was that like for you did did it matter 
to you? Because I'm wondering what your motivation is for seeking out these parts of history. Like as a kid, did you ever bring that up in school or is it just something you had to <clears throat> seek personally? Yeah, this is definitely a personal thing for me because you would have to know me. I went to uh, I went to graduate school and my thesis was on the 1980 Miami race riots, you know, and um, I was a, a good friend of of Mrs. McDuffie, who was the, the wife of Arthur McDuffie, who was killed by the, the five police officers who were acquitted in Tampa. They um, like so I I've always been very keen on just knowing my history, both local and and, and, and abroad, just, you know, whatever it is that I can that I can pick up on. So I'm I'm I'm, I'm an avid reader. So it's something that it's just something that I really just pick up on. And I just something that I, I've always had a, a passion for. You are a true Renaissance man. You are a writer, a poet, an actor, a little bit of a historian there. You're also a teacher, yeah. which we'll get to in a moment. But I was for you, what was the moment in your life when it clicked that you realized that writing and poetry, that the arts were your passion? I don't think it ever really clicked. Uh, funny, my father who passed, uh, he, my father, his punishments were uh, me writing out of the dictionary from eight <laughs> like that, that was, that's what he had me do um and it, it the funniest thing is and then between that and there was a picture in my room which i still have to this day that has like 50 names of of black historians and inventors and whatnot and he would make me stand in front of this and and he wanted me to know the number the person and what you know what what it was they accomplished so it was uh it was definitely i have no idea as what part in my life where i just knew writing was always there for me it was always something that was i liked but i didn't and i didn't indulge in it until like i got into high school when someone introduced me to to a to a fellow poet a uh, real one is is that your mentor the one you're talking about yeah my mentor yeah will, will willie bell will the real one who uh he was uh, taken from us back in uh, 2011. He, um, he was he was shot in front of his. It was, he was leaving his coffee shop poetry lounge and and he was shot down. That was in in 2011. You said right. Yeah, May 29th. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was. I was present that night. So yeah, I was. I was there. So it was like 10 feet from me where um, he was taken, and so you know, there's a lot of motivation behind me. Just you know, a lot. Of, the, with me pursuing the arts and, and what the way I have been as of lately, if anything. So over the over the past years, it's just it's just a progression that I've been going through of writing and acting and teaching here and there. But uh, I'm I'm so sorry for your loss because from what I've read, he he played such a big part in your life. He, you know, he opened you up to a, a, a whole new world. Yeah, coincidentally, like I had never thought about acting, but it was something that he wanted to do. He wanted something. He wanted to pursue acting, but he had the uh, his heart was definitely in running his his venue, so he never really dove into it. But it's it's funny how full circle. I'm the one that's out here acting and and, and doing the things that he he aspired to do once upon a time. What's the biggest le- What's the biggest lesson you took from him? Uh, biggest lesson. Um, it's a quote that he always he, he always said, you know, be humble yet explosive. 
So I think that's something that I I try to live by, to be honest with you. Um, it's, it's, it's engraved in me. I, I, uh, I'm doing a lot and to come from, you know, the environment I come from and to be doing things that I'm doing, I, I do have to sometimes understand that I am definitely, uh, blessed and highly favored, but I'm, I'm talented at the same time, but I, I definitely allow my work to speak for itself. So there's no need to me to be, uh, braggadocious or anything like that. I just, I just move. <laughs> mm. I just move with me. You, you've you've appeared in multiple films, music videos, and I'm wondering for you, talking about that acting, you know, is is that a natural extension of of the writing and the spoken word, or is that is that something totally different you're pursuing? I think it's a natural extension. Uh, I it helps because with the spoken word, I'm I'm writing. And I, I perform without paper. So, you know, memorizing four or five pages at a time to perform in front of people. And then on the other hand, you have the acting where you're handed a script, you're given a character and you have to, you know, remember lines and, and actions or whatnot. So they kind of go hand in hand for me. Uh, it wasn't a, a, it was a very smooth transition from, you know, with, you're not from, but, you know, with the, 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 the poetry and the acting. So, it's nothing that was really difficult to to do. I found something, you know, it's fairly easy. But, you know, the acting, <laughs> the acting without having to look like acting, I guess that's when it, you know, it comes with the skill. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, definitely. I'm speaking with Bertrand Boyd. He's a writer, poet, and actor from Miami, here in Miami, performing at the Mellow Fest in Dania Beach this Saturday. Uh, it's the Poetry and Music Festival dedicated to celebrating black culture in commemoration of Juneteenth. Find out more about it and all the events. It's on our social media. It's at WLRN Sundial. As I mentioned, Bertrand, you are also a teacher. You teach high school English. What's, yeah. your, what's your approach, you know, when you're dealing with this younger generation? How, how, do you, how do you approach poetry and writing that's different than maybe the way you were raised? It's... Uh... I don't even, I, I don't, I, I don't think I've ever performed for my students. If I can think about it, I don't, I never really brought that to their attention. For the most part, all they knew was that I, uh, I appeared in a music video of, 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 of Kodak Black that they, you know, everyone <laughs> a fan of. So, so, so for them, that was, that was it. You know, I'm a whole superstar for them, you know, at the time. So I, I my whole classroom and, and the things I do outside was very separate. I was very dis- big on d- discipline. I didn't like just chaos in my classroom, but I also was, uh, I could, my, my students, it was very, it was, it, I miss them. I could tell you that much. I do miss them. I miss working with, but I actually work with a group of kids now, but I do miss the classroom here and there. I probably had a slightly unorthodox approach, but it was only because I had I had my students' ear and their hearts, so it was easy to to talk to them and connect with them the way I did. What do you think about the fact, though? You know, uh, working with young people, you're now the mentor, right? How do you feel about that? Uh, it it goes hand in hand. I, it's, it's, it's just it's just what it is. I don't never consider myself a mentor but i understand that i am probably a mentor to some uh, to some of the ones that i the, the youngest that i work with 
over the years because I definitely still stay connected with them through social media and they definitely follow me and they always congratulate me and hit me up and telling me how much they they inspired and want to start acting or whatnot. And so in the future, I would love to be able to bring a program or start a program down here where, you know, youth could really get into the acting world and where they have a actually a good connection and, you know, to the industry, because I don't think they have it. I don't think it's accessible down here as it is elsewhere, especially like Atlanta yeah. or whatnot, because that seems like a hub right now for a lot of film. So I just want to get, I want exposure. I want not the exposure for myself. I want my kids to have the exposure. You know, well, my exposure would definitely help in helping them get to where they want to go if they ever want to pursue uh, a career in the arts. You know, with and, and with your kids, you know, what what did they teach you? What did what have they, you know, helped you achieve? You know, what what have you learned from them? Is is what I want to get at. Um. I'm, if anything, kids are honest. They're very honest in, 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 in all that they feel and everything that they do and everything that they say. They are very, very honest. There's a purity to them, you know. So I, if anything, that I I take that into consideration when I'm speaking to them and how I speak with them and tone and things of that nature because uh, it's for me, it's, it's innate to be somewhat stern, but it, it's not everyone's ability to take that or receive that in a positive way. So if anything, their honesty helps me be patient. So if anything, between their honesty, it helps me be patient with them mm-hmm. and patient with myself and, 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 and how I approach both the classroom and just in life in general. So you, you know, you'll learn a lot from the kids if, if you're willing to listen to them as well. As I mentioned, you're performing at the Mellow uh, Fest Poetry Music Festival this weekend. Um, what are you pre- What are you preparing? What are you getting ready for? What are you going? Uh, well, I mean, yeah. So Saturday, we have this event at, at the Dania Casino, May at the Mellow Fest. Uh, it is going to be an amazing event because we have uh, an, uh, an all star cast of talents. Uh, we have Talib Kwalif uh, headlining. We have Black Ice. We have myself. We have Jay Howard and the Experience, who is, who's also a South Florida native. And we have Maury Tay. And we have a nice a nice lineup. And it's just going to be an amazing event. We have host Will Sirius. So, I mean, for everyone who is available to come out, make sure you come out because I'll be there definitely having a good time. It's 21 or older. Doors open up at 7. Show starts at 8. Tickets are still available. And you definitely want to, you would love to come and show up and have a good time. Well, Bertrand, have a wonderful event. Best to you and and continued success. Thank you so much for sharing today. I appreciate you. Thank you. All right. Bertrand Boyd, again, writer, poet, actor from here in Miami, performing at the Mellow Fest in Dania Beach again on Saturday. Commemoration of Juneteenth. Learn more about it. He mentioned all the details there. We'll put that on our social media as well so you know all about the show when it, when uh, where you can get your tickets. Again, at WLRN Sundial. Well, still to come, Chopin fans rejoice the return of the Chopin Festival with in-person concerts. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Frederick Chopin is known as one of the leading musicians of his era. 
Some might say he's kind of a rock star back then, maybe like the Harry Styles of his day. The Polish composer and pianist was a child prodigy. By age seven, he had already begun performing in public concerts. Seven. The romantic sounds he composed on the piano have influenced music today. The Frost Chopin Festival begins this weekend in South Florida with free concerts and workshops. Joining me now is University of Miami professor Kevin Kenner. He's the artistic director and founder of the festival. Professor, great to have you back. Yes, thank you, Louis. It's very nice to be back. Definitely. Also joining us, Madison Yen, a Chopin Foundation scholarship recipient. She's participating in the festival as well. Madison, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. You know, I got to start with this. We were having this debate about Chopin and his role in his, in, you know, back in his day. But, you know, what, what is it you love most about Chopin? Professor, I'll start with you. Ah, well, I fell in love with his music when I was just a five-year-old listening to recordings that my parents used to play on their old LP of Arthur Rubinstein. Um, I think for me, it was always um, the the harmonies were just so beautiful and 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 the the lyricism. Uh, he he was influenced from the opera traditions of his generation. And, you know, I think just about everybody can sing at least one or two tunes of, of Chopin. It's that kind of music that is very easy to, to listen to and enjoy. And it's very soulful, very, uh, has a real emotional appeal for a lot of us. So certainly for me, that was, that was the thing that sort of um, grabbed me and it's stayed with me my whole life. Madison, what about you? What is it about Chopin for you? So for me, I think my first experience with Chopin was um, when I played one of his nocturnes. I was maybe around seven or eight years old. And to me, it was the harmonies, but um, I also really love Chopin's melodies. I, I don't know that many composers that come close to some of his very beautiful melodies. And, and something that's... Um, very special to his music also is like the reflective quality of it and it's so personal it really speaks to you on a very inner reflective spiritual way did somebody just start playing chopin for me <laughs> professor is that you <laughs> no i'm not playing i, I maybe madison's doing it in, you know, in oh the there we go we're playing it i was just <laughs> I, I just got caught off guard there for a second all right you know professor um what is relevant today about his music? Why is it still relevant in our society? Well, I think that um, all classical music is is very relevant, and uh, uh, Chopin uh, is just one of one of many. But I, I for the reasons I stated, uh, the fact that his music is something that is immediately appealing, um, it is something like a, a, a gateway. I think into well, you could, like a gateway drug in a way to, to classical music. It, it, it starts you off and brings you in. I, uh, I think a good example of that is the fact that Chopin was living in a generation uh, in the 1830s. There was an insurrection against um, the Russian oppression of, of his country. And uh, if you listen to his music, you can hear a lot of that pain and anguish and frustration. Uh, the revolutionary etude is a very good example. A lot of people have heard that piece. And uh, 
And I, I was really amazed when I saw on, on TV recently a pianist outdoors in Ukraine who was playing that very piece. Um, his music obviously resonates with millions of people who are now in a similar situation of occupation. And, um, and I, I think that that's just one example of many as, as to why his music is still relevant today. It just keeps coming back and, and uh, on many levels. You know, and, and I mean, he was, he became very famous uh, going into, a, starting at a very young age. Who do you, who would you compare him to? I think I was having a little fun at the beginning trying to say, you know, he's, he would be somebody famous today, but I don't know, knowing his personality, thinking about his personality and what his influence and his role was in his time, hmm. who would you compare him to today? Well, I think he's incomparable. I mean, you can't really compare him to anyone <laughs> because he's just, you know, you know his sound. It's unique. It's yeah. Chopin. And, and at the same time, uh, when you mentioned about the rock star, the first name that came to my mind was Franz Liszt. Uh, okay. He was a very extroverted kind of pianist. He loved playing in front of public. Chopin only played a little over 30 concerts in his whole life. He was quite shy. He did not like the concert platform. He loved to make music in sort of small groups. And it was, it had, he, he loved the intimacy of music and uh, played with such ease. So if I had to compare him to someone of the 20th century, I think it would actually be someone like Bill Evans, you know, mm. who had a wonderful ability to improvise just off the cuff. He could just take a melody and do something beautiful with it. And it was uniquely his. And I think Bill Evans certainly had that quality. And when I listen to, to, you know, to his uh, uh, recordings, I hear something of that sensitivity and uh, intimacy and the wonderful harmonic um, uh, gift that he had. Madison, I love, you know, you, you, touched on a little bit. I love your story. Um, your parents got you to start playing piano. How old were you? Uh, I think I was around four or five years old. So it, was it something like they said, you've got to play piano? Sort of. I think they just like enrolled me in lessons and I kind of went with it. <laughs> you, but you, you didn't like it at first? I did not like it too much i i mean i don't think i like minded it was just something i had to do i wasn't like um enraptured by it though all right i my understanding is that it was a particular piece from chopin that kind of changed your relationship to him right and then then you changed your relationship to the piano yes what was it yeah so i'm i wouldn't say this piece like completely just flipped my you know feelings towards the piano just black and white but um so when I first started when I was younger it was more just like building the technical foundations you know so so practicing wasn't the most exciting thing to my like five-year-old brain um and then I think as I grew older and including this piece by Chopin um I began understanding more like the musical uh quality the artistic side of music which is the most important side i would say and um so as i grew older and then started learning more about how to express myself and how to interpret the music on a deeper level 
I really fell in love with the piano. And that's this one that we're playing. That we also heard a little while ago, too. This is not you performing this, but this is his Nocturne uh, 21 in C minor. Um, yeah. So then, I mean, after that, you had a different appreciation, a different approach to your piano lessons and learning. Did you find yourself wanting to master the instrument at that point? Yeah, actually, um, I had a moment... I think it was actually during the Frost Chopin uh, Academy a few years ago, the first one that happened, I wasn't a part of it, um, but I did go and listen to some of the performances. And I remember just listening, um, I think it was just one of the student recitals um, and, and just the level of like musicianship and Chopin's music all combined into one. I was like, wow, I really want to master the piano. I think this is what I want to do. Hmm. Again, I'm talking with uh, Professor Kevin Kenner. He is the artistic director and founder of the Frost Chopin Festival. And you just heard from Madison Yan. She's a student at the Frost participating in this upcoming festival. Plus, she's a Chopin Foundation scholarship recipient. Again, the festival begins Sunday, June 19th. It concludes on the 26th. You can find out more about it on our social media, WLRN Sundial. The other beautiful thing, too, we're going to get to in a moment is the fact that we're back to in-person concerts, and that is special. Um, Professor, i got to come back to what you said a minute ago. You said this is a gateway drug. Chopin is a gateway drug to classical music. It's not snobby. I love that. Why? Well, I, I think that he's the kind of composer, I, I think of him a bit as well. Sorry, a lot of metaphors today. He's sort of like an onion. You know, you can sort of peel off layer by layer and get deeper and deeper. So the surface of this onion is just beautiful. And I, I think that is the initial appeal, it's just the beauty of the sound. Um, but it, the, the deeper you go, you start finding that the, the complexity, the sophistication um, just makes you want to dig deeper. And then you start hearing these influences of the great composers like like uh, Johann Sebastian Bach and and uh, Mozart and uh, Handel, and uh, you know I, I I think it's you know for me in my life it just it's an obsession I I I can't learn enough about him it just seems to to um, become more and more beautiful and and. Um, necessary in my, in my life. What's the last thing you learned about him that surprised you, even after all these years? You know, recently I, I discovered that he had just a marvelous sense of humor. You know, I, you know, you, you usually being think a shy oh, person. That's interesting. He was a shy person. And a lot of his music has this this uh, melancholy or this uh, anger, you know, passion. But um, if you look a lot into his earlier works and read some of his letters as well, he was just a very funny guy. He used to also sort of do contortions with his body. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and that was one reason why in the 2019 edition, we, we had a, a, actually a, a mime who flew out from Poland who did a whole show for us. And it was just really interesting to see that connection how how Chopin could be, be interested in that but he was very gifted in in his, on on so many levels and again sad that he did not live a long long life i mean you know i, I believe it was under 40 that it, when he died yeah that's right he was 39 Madison, all right, there is a recording of you actually playing uh you know we have was it nocturne 27 uh number 2 in d flat minor let's take a listen to it 
first, I'm just going to say how jealous I am. I wish I could do that. Um, absolutely beautiful. When you play Chopin, Madison, what exactly does playing Chopin do for you that no other composer does? Wow, okay. So I think on stage, um, playing Chopin versus other composers is just a different experience. Like, I feel like I connect on like a much a deeper level with Chopin and it's so um personally touching to me um so at the same time like like that feeling and then I'm able to translate it into um hopefully touch some of the audience's hearts too it's it's kind of indescribable I would say like some other composers I play and it's um it's a fun time you know um but chopin i think it's like you can really make magic on stage with him mm. and it's such both like a individual thing um and a personal and an intimate thing but also sharing that with other people mm. you know professor i was thinking about you know i mean we talked about this before and it was before the pandemic the the, this festival and how lucky we have it in Miami because it could be in so many other cities but how did we land it how did why Miami well um, we're very fortunate that the um, uh, the Chopin Foundation of the United States is a national organization uh, that has a mission of, of uh, really spreading the news about Chopin in, in the country and they are based right here in, in Miami and uh, so when I came to Miami in 2015 and started working at the university, um, I wanted to connect with them and, and see if we could do some joint projects. So, you know, it was with their partnership that I was able to begin this, this event. For you, what is the goal? You know, what is it, you know, I mean, Chopin fans will be delighted, but you always do want to bring in folks maybe who hadn't thought about it. What, what's the goal and, and what do you hope those folks take away? Well, exactly that. That's one reason why all of our concerts this year are free of charge, um, because we really do want to bring in as many people as possible. I, I think that, you know, our society right now has so much, uh, we, there are so many troubles in the world, in our country, in our, in our neighborhoods and uh, classical music has a way of just bringing some joy and and light into one's life. And I, I really want to share that with as many people as I can. Um, just give them something, some hope. And and uh, I don't know, just what it's given me. I, I, I feel that when I play this music and listen to this music, that I, I feel uh, enlivened, enriched, uh, awake, alive. That's what I want to share. I, I, I think it, it could really touch so many people um, if they would give it a chance. Mm. No, definitely. And, and you're right. It's in the world we live in today, something that we can all sit and agree upon. It, it would be something that we can agree to would be fantastic. Madison, I, I, I have to ask you this because I've, I've always been fascinated by this idea. But I mean, you think back, your parents said, look, you're going to learn the piano. And, and I know sometimes getting a young person to want to pick up something and, and, and learn that discipline can be challenging. I've seen you know, my brother trying to get his son to play guitar. Um, but I wonder what kind of professor Kenner is, uh, you know, Mr. Kenner is, you know, is he uh, that tough love teacher 
you know, or is it the gentle guidance? What, what works best? Do you think? I think, uh, in general, gentle guidance probably works better, but, um, professor Kenner, um, he is, he is very gentle guidance, I would say. Um, but also he has moments where like he, he's not, he, he won't let you go by with like, um, any imperfections you know like he expects the best from you and I personally feel so lucky and honored that I'm able to work with them and for so long because he has completely changed the way I play the way I think about music the way I approach the piano and he gives me so much to think about too just like in life as well not even in music um so yeah I, this isn't just like um just empty compliments i actually do believe that he really changed um a lot of like what i think about both in life and music mm. professor i mean i i i know that by the time they reach you they have spent years practicing and learning and they are at a very high level but you take them to that next level as a professor is it does it you have to be tough is it tough love you got to be tough with them to get them there or is there a different approach? I know your approach. What's your approach? Well, first of all, Madison, you're getting an A plus next semester. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't think of myself as tough. I, I don't really try to sort of push my students. Um, I want to inspire them. I, I want to help them find their own way so that they can just sort of take wings. And um, when you have students like Madison who are so determined and dedicated, I don't have to be harsh. Um, it's just, and I, the whole sessions that we have together are often sort of like mutual discovery. Uh, we just get into this music and sometimes I, I know the pieces that we're working on, uh, especially if we're doing works of Chopin, but it's a, it is always a discovery. And, and I think that process of how you discover together is, is what ultimately gives any student um, the power to, to make decisions for their future in terms of interpretation. And, and uh, so, yeah. And you know what? We, the audience, get to enjoy the fruits of that labor and the beauty that you create, the two of you. And I really appreciate it. Again, Professor Kevin Kenner, he's the artistic director, founder of the Frost Chopin Festival. We also heard from Madison Yan, a student at the Frost, plus a Chopin Foundation scholarship recipient. The festival again begins Sunday, June 19th, concludes the 26th. All the details are on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Professor, thank you so much. Have a wonderful, wonderful concert. Great to see you uh, back out there. Great to have you back on the show. Thank you so much. Thank and Mad you. Madison, thank you, and, and good luck moving forward. Thank you so much. All right. Again, get more details about the festival on our social media, WLRN Sundial. Well, still to come, you know, they fall out of our trees. They crawl out of our toilets. It's Wildlife Thursday. We're talking about iguanas. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. It is Wildlife Thursday, and we love to talk about animals and vegetation that call Florida home. And most of the time we discuss species that, of course, native to Florida. But today we got to talk about one species. It's expanding throughout Florida. It's invasive and it's causing a lot of problems. Iguanas. 
By the way, when were the first iguanas spotted in the Sunshine State? Do you know? Well, according to state officials, it goes back to the 60s, and they were first spotted in places like Hialeah, Coral Gables, and Key Biscayne. They are eating our native species and vegetation. They are a nuisance. Joining us now is someone who knows a thing or two about iguanas. He's an iguana hunter, mostly in the Keys. I want to welcome Manny Hernandez. Welcome, Manny. Hi, thank you for having me. You you grew up in South Florida. You're a South Florida guy, right? Yes, all my life. I'm 52 years old now, and uh, actually, I, I caught my first iguana when I was uh, eight years old. Eight years? All right, hold on a second. Take me back to that moment. Where was this, and how big was the iguana? So I, I was uh, one of those kids that couldn't be stuck at home uh, You know, at any time. I would run to the door with a broomstick and get that chain off that door, and I was out the door my mom hollering behind me come back come back and you know i'd i'd always be in in people's backyards and in the empty lots around my my neighborhood and uh, always looking for you know critters anything bugs snakes lizards whatever i could find and uh, back then uh, iguanas weren't very common actually they were very rare uh, to find and i remember walking on the on the edge of this empty lot and I saw this, my first iguana, and um, it was just instinctive. I just walked up to it and grabbed it, and uh, and I later on found out because I, I went back, I went around the neighborhood, trying to figure out you know where this thing came from, and it was uh, a, a a kid that had it in his backyard inside of a cage, and uh, they accidentally left the door open, and he walked out, wow. and, and and I caught him. And what did you do with it? Did you bring it back to the kid? Well, I, no, no, I had it. I had it for maybe about maybe two or three years, and then you know it 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 passed away. Wait, 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 back wait, wait. Then, Did your mom let you keep the iguana? Oh yeah, yeah. I, I had <laughs> I had everything. I had snakes. I had lizards. I had turtles. Uh, you know, everything was uh, mainly outside at that time. You know, and then when I get a little older, uh, I was able to move stuff. Uh, some stuff. Uh, into my room and uh but i've always always had animals you know what many i know i like you because i was always told i was weird for catching lizards and all kinds of bugs as a kid also i just enjoyed scaring other kids with them but good to know i'm not alone um did, by the way did you give it a name what was the name of the the iguana just iggy, iggy. <laughs> I called him iggy. Yeah. <laughs> but when did you because so you were eight when did you start noticing like iguanas were becoming like a problem like they were everywhere well um so when i was when i was about 13 years old i'd uh i'd jump on a on on two buses and my again my mother didn't know what i was doing i was just jumping on two buses and drive uh down uh ha- go down to um uh key biscayne on the old zoo mm. and uh that's more or less where the iguanas were mainly uh, you know, in, in abundance was at the old zoo. They, I guess they used to release them there for uh, the purposes of making it more like a, a Jurassic look to it or feel. Um, but when I really started to think, you know, this is getting out of hand, it was probably around 2007, 2008. Mm. Um, that's when really it, it kind of like started... Um, you know, like multiplying in, you know, a lot. Uh, but 
you know, over the years I've seen, you know, I, I've just seen it many times. It's every 10 to 15 years we get a good cold snap, uh, which, you know, brings down the population maybe, you know, down to um, uh, maybe a 20% of what it is at that moment. And we, uh, a lot of, yeah, and, and it's during those cold snaps that we, we get all the memes and the jokes of frozen iguanas. Um, what do we get? What do people get wrong about iguanas? What is it we don't know about them? So, you know, yes, they do. It, it, the common iguanas. So there's different iguanas that are in, in, you know, there's there's actually three different species of iguanas that are that are invasive, uh, known to be breeding in, in Florida. Uh, the one that's most common is the green iguana, which also, uh, you know, turns orange when they're the males turn ar- orange during the breeding season. Um, they don't eat animals. They they mainly eat, you know they they only eat uh, uh, greens and fruits and stuff. I think the worst thing about them is that they they poop all over the place and they eat nice, you know, they eat all the flowers. And then you know also they dig in the in the ground and 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 they cause erosion and stuff like that. Um, you know, as far as that's concerned, but uh, an impact to the native wildlife, uh, you know, in the most part, they kind of coexist with everything. Uh, it's just that they're not native. They don't belong here. And, uh, you know, they're it's in- a bittersweet thing for me because I like, I really like them. I love them. Uh, but I know that they're, that this is not their place. They're a nuisance, but as you said, they will eat vegetation they could help, you know, lead to causing of erosion to things, but they're mostly a nuisance, right? How about this, though? Come on. There's also the stories we hear from time to time. They pop up in our toilets, which is really freaky. Yes, and, and you know, that's mainly um, every house or, or building has, you know, that has plumbing, right, has, you know, sewage. Uh, they have a sewage. It's like a breathing stack. It's a pipe that comes out of the, the plumbing uh, and allows the the plumbing to to breathe, and that comes out on the on the on the roof. Well, the iguanas are constantly looking for a place to hide and and get away from the elements, especially for the winters and stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, they're trying to they're trying to look seek for shel- seek shelter, so they'll they'll climb inside that pipe, and eventually they find their themselves, you know, in people's toilets. Uh, the same way with uh, air conditioning. Um, I had I had a, one job that I had to do at a church at a Catholic church, and it was a retreat. Um, they they had a, they had retreats where they you know uh, ner- uh, nuns would go and stay in there in these rooms and stuff. And there's these iguanas that kept going into the um, through the uh, exhaust uh, vents and winding up in in the uh, in the dorms right and where the people were sleeping. And, and you can imagine you know a lizard. <laughs> showing up and there's 10 nuns uh there's a lot of praying going on that's, uh, that's all i can say uh, okay they just uh, there's a visual and there's a lot of jokes you can make about that as well you know i talk about the fr- the freezing iguanas that's the other thing too is like when you do have a freeze you know you'll hear the joke oh it's raining iguanas because they're falling out of the trees they're frozen um they may not be dead right so like I said, every 10 to 15 years, we get a good cold snap. And what a good cold snap is, and I'm saying good in a bad way to the iguana, right? Uh, when, they, when, the, when the temperatures start getting into the low 40s, um, that's where you start getting 
um, you know, the uh, damage to the actual, um, uh, uh, you know, organs of the, uh, of the iguana. But, you know, when they drop down in temperature, they go into like a dormant state. Um, when it gets down into the 30s, uh, that's where the, the actual damage is to the animals. And a lot of them don't die, um, you know, until it reaches down into the 30s. So we need to get, we need to get a few winters where we, you know, to get into the 30s to kind of like knock them back. Um, but again, it, there's iguanas that actually burrow into the ground and those are um, shielded from the cold. Uh, they also can drop into the, into the water. The water always, uh, you know, if they're, if they're over, uh, overhanging, you know, um, a lake or, or, you know, um, mangroves or something like that, uh, the water temperature is, is, a, is at a higher temperature. So as long as they maintain their heads out of the water and their bodies are, are in the water, if it's not too many days of cold, uh, they can survive so they're uh, cold snaps as well. They're looking for warm places is what they're doing. And, you know, uh, but, but here's the thing. Like if you find one, let's say they get into that exhaust vent, oh, dear God, or your toilet or whatever, what do you tell people what to do? How, how, what's the next step? How do I handle this? I don't feel like grabbing it. Yeah. The, I mean, the only thing that you could do is call somebody that, um, you know, is experienced in doing that and, you know, to remove it. Um, I, I honestly don't uh, recommend that they try to remove the animal themselves. They do have uh, teeth and they can bite. Uh, they have nails that they can scratch with, you know, I mean, an iguana that's in your toilet is not going to be a very big iguana. You know, the, the, the pipe is only four inches. Um, so you're not talking about an iguana that's five feet long coming out of your toilet. Yeah, but Manny, it's, 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 always... it's, it's, it's an iguana. It's a, it's a living thing that's in my toilet. I don't care how big it is. It, I it's already, it's already... What, Look, tell me about how you capture them. What's, what, what are some of the processes for you, like how, how you capture so it all depends on what the situation is. There's there, you know, depending on where they're at, I use uh, traps. Uh, I've actually modified a lot of uh, regular traps. I've created traps. Uh, I do noosing uh, with a pole. Uh, it's a 20 foot pole with um, uh, an, uh, a monofilament um, noose at the end of it. I'll go out at night and walk around and uh, catch them. Out of the trees, uh, I have a 20-foot pole that I can knock them out of the trees and catch them in the air, uh, run them down, uh, swim uh, after them. When they jump in the water, I'll swim down. They, they kind of like like to get uh, down underneath the, the roots, and, and you can swim down and just pick them up. Um, and by the way, you know, what, what are the rules of killing them? Well, right now, um, you know, you can, you can uh, humanely euthanize uh, any, any iguana. Uh, the FWC has recently changed the laws uh, where they're now they're banned. Nobody can keep them uh, as pets. And um, actually, some of the laws are so strict that it kind of, um, you know, it, it, it doesn't it doesn't help me in doing my job as far as trying to eliminate them from the from the wild. But uh, anybody can uh, humanely euthanize the, the iguana. You said a couple of times that we need a couple of good winters to really knock their numbers down. Do you think it's an invasive species? Do you think we can ever eradicate them completely? 
I, I honestly think, you know, that um, it, it's going to be impossible to, to eradicate them. Uh, I, at one point, I thought that, yes, that it could be. Uh, but the thing is that there's just so many uh, private properties that, you know, where you can't just go in there and, and remove them. Um, and there's, there's people that love them. There's people that hate them. So I, I think that they're here to stay. Uh, there's nothing. The, the only thing that you can do is just manage their their numbers uh, by you know trapping them, removing them, um, and uh, and just educating the public that you know on on how how to deal with them. So I gotta ask this question: Have you ever eaten one? Yes, they're they're actually very very tasty. Okay. You know, um, describe to me first of all how you prepare it, but what's the texture and the taste like? So, you know, I, like any animal, especially, you know, when you're talking about an iguana, everybody's got that in his mind that, um, you know, salmonella, right, or, or any type of other disease. So, um, you know, the preparation is, you know, you want to make sure that you clean the animal very good. I wash it, you know, down with soap, the body and stuff before I cut into the into the um, the leg or the tail. And you got to remove that the the skin from it. And what I like to do is I like to just, you know, salt and pepper, um, bread, bread it with my favorite breading seasoning and deep fry it. And then, you know, you make a little bit of hot sauce and uh, <laughs> you, you feed it to your friends and have it over beer and, and, and talk uh, stuff. I'll take your, <laughs> I'm going to take your word for it. I, I'm, I'm going to have lunch in a little bit, but I'll take your word for it. Manny, I really appreciate, uh, thank you for sharing these stories with us and, and as you said, you know, if you find one, find somebody who, who can capture it for you. Don't try to do it yourself. Thank you very much. Thanks again. Again, Manny Hernandez, he is an iguana hunter, mostly in the Keys. And yes, we'll post up on our, our website, you know, what to do if in case you see an iguana. Don't, don't go after it yourself. Well, that's our Wildlife Thursday for today. That's our program for this June 16th. Katie Munoz is our lead producer. Leslie Ovai is our producer and social media editor. Our engagement editor is Katie Lepre-Cohen. Our news director is Terrence Shepard. Alicia Zuckerman is our editorial director. Jessica Bakeman is our senior news editor. WLRN's interim program director and technical supervisors, Peter J. Meritz, Richard Ives, pushing the buttons today. And right now you're listening to a little bit of Chopin as we end the show. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe. Take care of each other. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. WLRN Public Media.